So last week we were talking about meditation, or last month we were talking about meditation. And we talked about Samatha meditation. So let me briefly go over that, and tonight we're going to talk about mindfulness meditation and liberation or nirvana. The Buddhist path has three levels. The first level is uh, Panchasila, the five precepts. That sets the foundation for meditation. Meditation sets the foundation for wisdom. Wisdom liberates us, and we never have to suffer again. Forty-four different kinds of Buddhist meditation, according to Buddha Gosha, in his book, The Vasudhimaga, The Path of Purification. Forty kinds of meditation allow us to be tranquil, tra tranquil and peaceful. Four kinds of meditation allow us to be mindful and acquire deep insight into the true nature of what it means to be a human being. That deep insight allows us to find freedom in this very lifetime and never have to suffer again. So when a Buddhist talks about freedom, there's only one kind of freedom they're talking about. It's not the kind of freedom where you get to do anything you want. It's not the kind of freedom where you get to... Uh, it's the kind of freedom that says, I want to be free from suffering. The Buddha taught two things. He taught, first of all, why we suffer. Second of all, how to end our suffering. When I go to the retirement community in Seal Beach, I don't have to explain about suffering. Everyone there knows about suffering. And as you get older, you'll know about suffering too. So they don't want to hear about suffering. They want to hear how to end the suffering. In our tranquility meditation, there is something called the four jhanas, the four levels of tranquility. The first jhana has applied thought, sustained thought, happiness, bliss, and equanimity. The second jhana has happiness, bliss, and equanimity. Pardon me. Yes, and the third jhana has happiness and equanimity, and the fourth jhana has equanimity. In Buddhist meditation, if you're doing it right, you're getting less, not more. We want to get rid of the things that prevent us from being happy. We want to get rid of the things that prevent us from being free. There are three things that prevent us. The three things we want to get rid of. They are greed, hatred, and delusion. We get rid of greed by practicing generosity. We get rid of hatred by practicing love and kindness. We get rid of delusion by practicing the Dharma. As we go deeper and deeper into our tranquility meditation, we become one-pointed. We have a concentration that is sustained and lasts for a long time. We focus on one thing and one thing only. Concentration meditation allows you to get better grades in school because you can stay focused for longer and longer periods of time. It allows you to drive on the freeway a little bit better because you're paying attention to the road and not texting or playing with your cell phone or talking. 
Concentration is something humans do that no other animal can do in the way we do it. It's a skill that needs to be exercised. Tranquility meditation is simply the meditation that requires us to concentrate on one thing for a long period of time. The concentration I'm talking about is something that allows you to end past and future and come to the present moment experience of your life, which is really difficult to do because most of the time we're thinking about what we're going to do next or what we should have done yesterday. So if we can spend even five minutes in the morning checking in with ourselves, seeing how we're doing by simply watching your breath go out and come in, sensation of breath going out and come in. Every sensation we have is happening right now. The sensation of breath doesn't happen tomorrow. It didn't happen yesterday. The sensation of breath always happens right now. Right now is the only place we live. If we want to have a better tomorrow, we need to be skillful right now. Okay. The Buddha was taught samadhi, samatha meditation, tranquility meditation, by the yogis of India. He became really good. They call him a prodigy. He took to it in no time at all and surpassed his teachers in meditating. But he realized he was only free from suffering while he was in meditation. As soon as he ended his meditation and walked out the ashram door, he started to suffer again. And he realized that kind of meditation was okay for temporary relief from suffering, but it wasn't eternal relief from suffering. That's when he rediscovered insight meditation Vipassana meditation. It said that all the Buddhas before Siddhartha practiced and found insight meditation the one thing that liberated them from their suffering. So the Buddhist contribution to meditation is Vipassana, insight meditation. But the Buddha did both forms of meditation. He did insight meditation until he achieved nirvana. After that, he didn't do insight meditation any longer. But he continued to do samatha meditation until his last breath at 80 years old. And why would that be the case? Why would he have to meditate? After all, he was the Buddha. One of the things that samatha meditation does, it brings the body back into balance. And if you think about 2,600 years ago, they didn't have very good doctors or medicine. The samatha meditation allowed the Buddha to anesthetize the pain in his body. It said that the Buddha, as he walked around India or Nepal, in his 80s would have to stop once in a while because he was tired and his back hurt and he needed to rest. And when I first read that, I was surprised because I thought the Buddha was beyond that. But I continued to read, and it seems to me that when we achieve nirvana, 
We only transform our consciousness. We don't transform our bodies. Our bodies are subject to sickness, old age, and death. But we can transform our consciousness in nirvana to never have to be reborn again, to never have to suffer again. Last Sunday was Easter, and the Christians of the world celebrated the fact that Christ arose from the grave to go to heaven. On the full moon day of May, next month, we will celebrate the fact that the Buddha never had to go to heaven again. (laughs) That every time the Buddha was reborn, before he was the Buddha, he had to watch his parents die, he had to watch his best friends die, he had to watch his pets die, if he had pets. He shed as many tears as necessary to fill the oceans of the world, because birth always leads to sickness, old age, and death. And he figured out how to exist without being born. And we call that nirvana. It's a parallel universe, if you will. The TV show Cosmos now is on Fox, and it's fascinating when they talk about how the world started from a scientific perspective, and and the black holes, and the comets, and the Earth, and all that kind of stuff. But all that stuff was created by who, we're not sure. And because of creation, it always leads to destruction. And the most amazing thing about nirvana is it is unborn and undying. It is the gift the Buddha gave to us through his teachings that we will never have to suffer, we will never have to go through the rounds of birth and death again once we achieve our goal. There are four kinds of insight meditation, four kinds of mindfulness. Mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of sensations, mindfulness of the mind, mindfulness of mental objects. I'm going to talk about sensations tonight. There's a technique in mindfulness meditation where you start at the top of your head and take your attention, take your awareness, take your mindfulness and go from the top of your head to the tip of your toes and then you come back up again and then you go back down again and you do that for 10 minutes you do that for 15 minutes what you're looking for are any kind of sensations that are occurring in your body or your mind the Buddha said we have three kinds of sensations only three we have good sensations We have bad sensations, we have neutral sensations. So for instance, you're sitting on the floor, you're scanning your body, top to bottom, bottom to top, trying to find a sensation, and you come to your knees, and your knees are hurting because you're sitting cross-legged on the floor, that's your first sensation, and you say, that sensation is unpleasant. And then you leave it alone, and you find some more sensations, And when I first started meditating, I never had a good sensation. I only had unpleasant sensations. Knees hurt, ankles hurt, back hurt, mind wanted to do something else besides meditate. Nothing happy about meditation for me. 
Last night, I was leading meditation, and we start a meditation at 7.30, and we end at 8.30. And oftentimes before I go to meditation, I take a shower, and I plan on answering the door at 7.25, so we can start meditating at 7.30. Well, at 7.20, somebody's ringing the door. Ming, ming. I didn't answer it. I waited until 7.25, until I was ready to answer the door. And I said to him, my, my, you're eager to come and meditate, aren't you? He said, yes, I can hardly wait. So he can hardly wait to sit and do nothing for an hour. We rang the gong, and all, in about 10 minutes, he started to move his legs. I could tell he hadn't meditated very much before. After 20 minutes, he was now kneeling instead of sitting. After 35 minutes, he was stretched out trying to get all the unsatisfactory sensations out of his body. By the time the hour had finished, he was standing. He could no longer sit. And I looked at him and said, you were so eager to come and meditate when we first started, and after an hour of meditation, you can barely sit. He said, well, I'm new at this. I understand that meditation is really good, and I want to practice. But it is so difficult when you have a body that's not used to sitting on the floor. So a lot of people who practice meditation find that there is a lot of unpleasant sensations going on in their body. But if you stick with it, if you give yourself a couple months or even a couple years, you'll find that you now have pleasant sensations as well. So, so you're going through your body and you're looking for the pleasant sensations, you're looking for the unpleasant sensations, you don't care about the neutral sensations because your mind isn't aware of those. After you're through sitting, watching sensations arise and pass away, then the real work begins. Now we want to find the three aspects of Buddhist wisdom in every sensation. The first aspect of Buddhist wisdom is anicca, impermanence. And you say to yourself, after meditating and finding sensations, were all the sensations I became aware of, were they impermanent? Did they last with the same intensity? Or did they seem to have a vibratory nature? Did they seem to come and go? And sometimes my left knee hurt, and sometimes my right knee hurt, and there wasn't any consistency or longevity in any of the sensations. So the conclusion you come to is that every sensation we have as a human being is always impermanent. There's a beginning, there's a middle, and there's an end, but they never last forever. And now you take the same insight that you have arrived at through your meditation practice and you apply it to the world. And you look at the world and you say to yourself, is there anything in the world that doesn't change? Is everything in the world impermanent? Now one of the interesting parts about this Cosmos TV show that you can watch on Hulu, if you don't have time to watch it on TV, is they talked about how the universe began. And they said it came out of nothing. One moment there was nothing. 
This is the scientific explanation. One moment there was nothing. Now how long is a moment? A moment is as long or as short as you want it to be. It has no duration. You can have a million moments in a minute, or you can have one moment in a minute. So for one moment, however long that was, there was nothing. And then, for some reason, there was a giant bang, an explosion, that started the universe in motion. It is still in motion. It is still expanding. There is nothing in this universe that is not moving or changing all the time. And now we apply that to ourselves. And we say to ourselves, if for one moment everything stopped, what would we experience? And as a human being, we would experience nothing. Because our sense doors are only tuned in to things that change, not to things that don't change. So if you like music, in order to hear music, you have to have silence and sound. Silence and sound. Music has a vibratory nature which stimulates the eardrum and makes the eardrum vibrate. If there is only silence and only sound, you can't hear anything. In order to see something, you have to have sight and no sight. It needs to stimulate the nerves. If it's one or the other, we can't see anything. So we are attuned, we are designed to become aware of things that change. We have no way of seeing or feeling or experiencing anything that doesn't change. That's why when somebody asks you, what is nirvana, you're going to have to say, I don't know. Nirvana could be right next to me, but there's nothing in my body that can be stimulated by nirvana because it is unborn, undying, and unchanging. So we think about impermanence, we look around the universe, we look inside ourselves, and we say that all things are changing all the time. The first deep insight the Buddha gave us. <clears throat> the second deep insight the Buddha gave us was that our life will be ultimately unsatisfactory. The Buddha didn't say life is always unsatisfactory and filled with suffering, but he says it always ends up being unsatisfactory and filled with suffering. And you may disagree with that if you're young because you can see all the things that are really good out there. The iPhone, Knott's Berry Farm, Farrell's Ice Cream, what great things we have access to that give us so much happiness and joy. But they don't stay open all the time. Sooner or later they have to close and we have to leave and then we're bummed out and then we suffer. Or you wake up in the morning and you have a special date that afternoon and you can't do anything with your hair because you slept on it wrong and it's sticking up like this and you're going crazy and you just wish it was different than it is and that's the problem with being a human being is we always wish it would be different than it is. When I was speaking to the woman today that has cancer for the third time she said I wish I was 
the same way I was 20 years ago. I had energy, I was healthy, life was exciting. Now I'm dying. I wish it was different. I don't want to die. So you can see the Buddha was not pessimistic at all. The Buddha was realistic. He looked at the world and he realized that humans always think that they can make it just a little better if they do this or if they do that. And we never can do this or that to the point that makes our life better. And if we did, by some chance, have this perfect moment, it has to change because everything's impermanent. So when it changes from perfect, it only can get worse. And we're dissatisfied. We're not happy. I got to tell you a joke I heard today on Facebook. It's a really funny one, I think. Imagine this monk standing there and this woman who's dressed very alluringly comes up to the monk and says, I want to ask you a question. The monk says, yes. She says, in your mind, what, what would be the perfect date? And the monk says, that's a really diff difficult question to answer as a monk. But I would have to say, April 25th, it's not too hot, it's not too cold, and I could wear my light robes. Da -da -da. Okay, I like that one. <laughs> so we have two aspects of Buddhist wisdom now, impermanence and suffering. And now we come to the third aspect of Buddhist wisdom. And this all comes from a meditation practice. And this is the hardest one to understand. This is the one that's the most difficult. And I have spoken to many Buddhists who don't understand it, who don't believe it, who don't want to believe it. And it's okay. The Buddha said in the Kalama Sutta, don't believe it just because I say it's true. And don't believe it just because it's in the books. And don't believe it because all the elders think it's true. Believe it because you have found it to be true in your own practice and your own life. This is called anatta. This is called not-self. The Buddha looked really carefully, inside and out, mind and body. Is there anything that exists that doesn't change, that stands apart, and that is transferred to the next lifetime? And in Hinduism, you'd have to say, yes, Atman. It goes from one life to the next. It's unchanging. Only the vessel changes, but not the original essence. And the Buddha said he looked really carefully to see if there was something like an essence, like a self, like a soul, that was there inside the body someplace that didn't change and went to the next lifetime. And his conclusion was, there wasn't. And people just sort of freaked out. Well, how can that be? I have this little voice in my head. It's been with me my whole life. Isn't that who I really am? I look in the mirror. I see someone looking back. Isn't that who I really am? I have a diploma on the wall. It says I graduated. Isn't that who I really am? 
All the people I know call me by my name. Don't they see me? Aren't I what they see? Don't I exist in the way I think I do? And the Buddha said, no. He said, it's an illusion. It allows us to live in a very complicated society. We can change the course of rivers. We can build bridges, cars, and airplanes because we think we are separate from the airplane. We think we are separate from the car or the bridge or the river. We think we stand apart and alone and can manipulate the world around us. And people are fond of saying, be one with everything. Have you heard that saying? And we can't be one with everything because we would just stop. Can you imagine if you were one with the door? How would you leave? There'd be no door to walk through because you would be the door and the door would be you and you'd be in this room for the rest of your life. So we need to be separate in order to function as a human, and it was a wonderful gift given to the human species that no other animal has in the way we do. It's amazing, but it is an illusion. So we need to go a little bit further with this. We need to say, well, what's the problem with having a soul, according to Buddhism, according to the Buddha 2,600 years ago? He said, I have found two problems with having a soul. The first problem is, if you think you have a soul, and it's an eternal soul, you may have difficulties taking each lifetime seriously. You may say to yourself in one lifetime, well, if I'm going to have a hundred more lifetimes, or a thousand more lifetimes, maybe in this lifetime, I'll just do whatever I want to do, and then I'll make up for it in all my coming lifetimes. So I'll steal, I'll be a bad person, I won't care because I can make up for it. Not taking responsibility for a lifetime that might come out of believing in an internal soul. How about if you don't believe in anything? You say, well, there is no soul, there is no heaven, there is no afterlife. Then what happens is you say, it doesn't matter what I do in this lifetime. I can do anything I want because I'm just going to feed the trees when they put me in the ground. There's no retribution, there's no penalty. So the Buddha saw that there was an accountability issue with believing in a soul or not believing in a soul. So what the Buddha said, and I think he was real skillful, is he said this, we may have a soul, but it's not who we really are. And then we say, well, what goes to the next lifetime? Is it me? Do I get to go to the next lifetime? Will I recognize people in the next lifetime? And I don't think it really works that way. And the reason I say that is the other day I was looking through a photo album and I was looking at myself when I was in grade school and when I was in high school and when I was working and when I was 20 and when I was 30 and when I was 40. And what I noticed in all these pictures of this guy who was supposed to be me, is that guy no longer exists at all. The boy who was 10 years old died a long time ago. 
Now he's this old guy sitting here in this chair. The guy that was 20, he died a long time ago too. And the guy that was 30, he died a long time ago too. And the guy that lived yesterday, he died as well. And somebody else woke up this morning thinking he was that guy, but he was a new guy. And for the new guy, this was the first day he had ever lived. And tomorrow, another new guy will wake up, and it'll be his first day. And the day after that, another new guy will wake up. That we are just a series of mind and body phenomena that were never the same person very long at all. This morning, I woke up, and it felt like a Monday. By noon, it felt like a Thursday. And by six tonight, it felt like a Saturday. Who was that guy in just this one day? Who was a little tired this morning, took a nap this afternoon, felt better this evening? Is it the same guy? The Buddha said, imagine there's a match. And you take the match, and you light a candle, and then you take the candle, and you light a lantern. Is it the same flame that the match had, that the lantern had? Is it the same one, or is it because of the first flame, the second flame now exists? And because of the second flame, the third flame now exists. Do not the same flame, do not a different flame. Isn't that an interesting way of looking at it? Because I existed yesterday, I'm existing today. And because I exist today, I'm existing tomorrow. Is it the same guy? Wow. So what goes to the next lifetime, according to Buddhism? Because we don't have reincarnation except for Tibetan Buddhism. They have reincarnation. And my teacher, Dr. Ratanasara, Sri Lankan elder, used to chuckle about that. He used to say, oh, those people don't know. Vajrayana, Tibetan Buddhists, they don't know. There's, there's no reincarnation. There's rebirth. The Buddha talked about rebirth. What's being reborn? Not the soul, not the self. What's being reborn is our karmic energy. So how does that work? How can karmic energy be reborn? And what is karmic energy? What is karma? The Buddha said karma is everything we think, everything we say, everything we do. The scientists say you cannot create or destroy energy. You can only transform energy. So we have a certain amount of energy in the world. We can't have more and we can't have less. Every time we think something, we're taking this energy and we're using it to think and now we're giving it a value, a karmic value. Is it a good thought? Is it a bad thought? Is it a neutral thought? Every time we say something, we're taking this energy from the world and we're giving it a value. Am I speaking skillfully? Am I speaking unskillfully? Every time we do something, walk, run, work, play, we're taking the energy and we're giving it a value. Now, because this energy can't be destroyed, it follows us like a wake behind a boat. 
And if we've done a lot of good things in our life, if we've been skillful, if we've been kind, if we've been generous, if we've been wise, this wake behind the boat, our karmic energy, is good. And this good karma is reborn in the next lifetime. But what does that say about me? Do I get to go to the next lifetime? I don't even get to go to tomorrow. I'm just here right now in this moment. And the next moment, I'm somebody else. And the next moment, I'm somebody else. Now, it sounds a little weird, but imagine this. Imagine my life. My birth name is Carl. My Buddhist name is Kusla. Carl was given birth in 1949. Kusla was given birth in 1994 with the ordination. So Kusla got an ordination and a certificate that says Kusla now exists in the world. But there was Carl too. So how are we going to work this out with Carl and Kusla? Well, Carl pays taxes. Carl had to pay taxes April 15th. Kusla didn't have to pay taxes. Carl had to do laundry on Thursday. Kusla, he never does laundry. Carl had to go to the store and buy cat food and cookies. Kusla never goes to the store. What does Kusla do? Kusla gets to talk. Who drove up? Carl drove up. And Kusla came into the room. And when Kusla's going to go home, Carl gets to drive back. So who is he really? <laughs> We're a lot of things. You get to do that too without even getting an ordination. As you get older, you'll find the right person and be smitten, as they used to say. You'll be in love, you'll be attached, you'll be blind, you'll be deaf. It'll be so wonderful. And then you'll be not who you are, you'll be a boyfriend and a girlfriend, perhaps. And then it keeps going on and on, and this is the person, this is my soulmate, even though there may not be a soul, and you decide to get married. And now you become Mr. and Mrs. And why do you have to be Mr. and Mrs.? Because Mr. and Mrs. have different things they need to do to make the relationship work. Then, given a little time and a lot more delusion, what happens? You become parents. How cool is that? So not only are you Mr. and Mrs., now you're mom and dad. Whoa! Now, I never met Joyce. Joyce was my mother's maiden name. By the time I got there, Joyce had turned into mom. So I only knew Joyce's mom. But I heard people talking about Joyce, and Joyce seemed to have a lot of fun when she was Joyce, but not so much when she was mom. Because she was working hard to keep the kids clothed and fed and happy. If you live long enough, mom sometimes turns into grandma, another person. 
And grandmas are the best because they are so nice and happy and glad to see you, and then they leave. Moms never get to leave. (laughs) So you see, even if you never get ordained, in just one lifetime, you become many, many different kinds of people. That you have to be these kinds of people in order to do the role that's necessary to be a husband or a wife, a mom or a dad, a grandma or a grandpa. Even when you work and become an employee and have a number, you need to be a different kind of person at work than you are out of work. And you'll go to school for years and years and years to be a certain kind of person so you can be a certain kind of employee and work and make a lot of money. We're always changing. We're always becoming somebody new. And if you live long enough, you'll become old. And you'll not be able to see quite as well as you used to. You won't be able to hear as well as you used to. You won't be able to remember things like you used to. And you won't care. So we're always changing. We're always becoming new people. We're never the same very long. And that's why the Buddha said, we are always in a state of process and flux. We are like a river in the mountains, going downstream, always changing. They say you can never put your foot in the same river twice because the water is always moving. And you can look in the mirror and never see the same person twice, even though the illusion is, it's me. These three kinds of insights, anicca, dukkha, anatta, impermanence, suffering, not self, allow us to become liberated. And why is that the case? Because we become detached in the best sense of the word. Our attachment and our aversion, our likes and dislikes, fall away. And we come to a place of perfect balance where everything is just the way it is supposed to be. That you look at the world and you see the perfection of the world through the eyes of an enlightened person. But it doesn't mean you can rest. It doesn't mean your work is done. If you study the story of the Buddha, it is such a wonderful template for all of us. What we see is he had a full life. He had a full life as a layperson. He, he was a prince. He was a husband. He was a father. But at some point, the lay life didn't satisfy him the way it used to, and he chose a spiritual life. But he didn't go to the mountains and stay there for the rest of his life, enjoying his nirvana. He was only away from society for six years. That was his retreat. That is where he practiced his yoga, his renunciation, his meditation. He achieved nirvana on the full moon day of May. And then what did he do? 49 days after his nirvana, he looked at the world and realized the world was on fire with suffering and maybe some people could understand how he achieved his liberation so he taught for 45 years because of his wisdom and compassion. 
He didn't just sit on the top of the mountain. He worked really hard. So if any one of us are lucky enough to ever achieve nirvana, just the beginning. Now we've got seven billion humans who are suffering. A lot of work. <laughs> it never ends. So this journey we're on as a Buddhist is the journey of perfection. It is so rare to be a perfect human being. It is so rare that we celebrate one who lived 2,600 years ago, who came and realized his perfection. We all have the same potential. It's called the Buddha nature in us. We all have the potential to be perfect, but it takes practice and it takes determination and it takes commitment. It also takes the five precepts, it takes meditation. That's the foundation for our wisdom that will liberate us. And we can be anywhere, any place, and not suffer and be of service to others. It's a pretty amazing journey. I think I'll stop there and ask if anybody has any questions or comments on what I've just said. If any of it made sense, or if you think, what is this guy talking about? Nothing? Somebody? What do you think? Does anybody meditate here? Anybody practice the five precepts here? Sometimes? Okay. <laughs> so, this is like the philosophical aspect of Buddhism. This is like why we do what we do. This is what you tell your friends when they ask you what does it mean to be a Buddhist. And you say, well, the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, meditation. This is, this is, this is the stuff that's sort of important to know because as a Buddhist, it's good to know about Buddhism. A lot of Buddhists I've met offer incense, say hi to the monks, and they go home. Yeah. Um, what, are you, what are your thoughts on telepathy? Telepathy. What are my thoughts on telepathy? Okay. Good question. Let me give you a story. The Buddha and Ananda were walking to a village. The Buddha was going to give a talk. And there was a large river, and there was a raft. And it cost a penny apiece to take the raft. So Ananda pulled out two pennies, and the Buddha and Ananda got on the raft, and they were being pulled across the river. And on the shore was a yogi, all dressed in white. He was glowing. He had an aura. And he stepped down and started walking across the water to the other side. Wow. And Ananda said, Buddha, you could do that. Why didn't you walk on the water? Telepathy. And the Buddha said, how much did it cost us to take the raft? Ananda said, it cost us a penny. The Buddha said, that's the value of walking on water, a penny. There isn't much value in telepathy, as far as I'm concerned. Simply listening to people speak, can you imagine having to listen to their thoughts too? Oh, do, do people have really intelligent, skillful, interesting thoughts? Most of the time, by listening to people speak, I would say probably not. 
they probably have thoughts like, where's the bathroom? And I'm thinking, I don't want to hear those thoughts. I am so glad I don't have to read people's minds. Yes? I'm not talking about it in that way. What way are you talking about? Right. And what would be the point? The point is that you're not not moving your mouth. Don't have to drink water to lubricate your throat. Just take aspirin once in a while because your brain starts to hurt. I don't know. I don't know if that's such a good thing. I think we have the ability to have intuition and sort of feel what people are thinking without really knowing exactly what they're thinking. But to be honest with you, again, I'd rather not talk to people brain to brain. I think it's much more interesting to hear a person speak. You know? And even in watching my own thoughts, they're not that interesting. I don't think there's much to learn. Now, let me say this. It is said the Buddha could read minds. It is said the Buddha could see at least a hundred thousand past lifetimes. It is said the Buddha could look at any man or woman and see a hundred thousand of their past lifetimes. Would that be useful if you were a teacher? To be able to see how the person went from lifetime to lifetime, did what they did, and the reasoning behind that, and then they came to the Buddha, and the Buddha could tell them exactly what they needed to do to achieve nirvana. That kind of telepathy, that kind of insight would be useful as a teacher who has a student. But just in everyday life, I don't know. I don't think it has much value, but that's just my opinion. I do like to read science fiction books, and I like to watch science fiction movies, and that comes up a lot, the telepathy and that kind of stuff. It's fun to see on the screen, but I don't know about real life. Thanks for asking the question. Thanks. Anybody else have anything they'd like to say? Okay. Well, let's do a, a loving kindness meditation to end our, uh, our, our teaching tonight. 